Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. question underneath this passage is the same question that we've been asking since Eden. Is there a God who actually loves me? Paradise is lost and every one of us in our own way feel the guilt of our father Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness and the corruption of our whole nature. So we assume the answer to our question is a resounding no. This has been illustrated throughout history by every religion, every atheist, every philosophy, every cult, and indeed every one of us in how we create gods who at the bottom of it all, at their best, put up with us, and at their worst, hate us. And we devote our lives to either appeasing this God or rejecting it. All the while, according to this passage, there is a God who actually loves us. And we know that because he is the God of the covenant. I'm going to cover three ideas. There's a better covenant, there's a better law, and there's a better God. We naturally think that God relates to us contractually. According to the Bible, according to this passage, God relates to us covenantally. Look at verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Verse 17. This is what I mean. The law which comes 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. You see, Paul is using here a common understanding that we would understand of the covenants, of how we make covenants that once a covenant is ratified, once it's signed and sealed and delivered, then there can be nothing added to it later that would change the essence of the covenant. So imagine with me for a moment that you have a rich uncle. Maybe you've imagined this before. I have. And that rich uncle decides that he is going to give you his massive uh, inheritance. He goes and he signs his will, says that you're going to receive it. Years later, he passes away and you and your family are standing 
together before the lawyer and the lawyer reads off the will, says that the inheritance now goes to you. As this beneficiary, you're obviously saddened by the death of your uncle, but you receive this massive inheritance with joy. Fifteen years later, though, you can imagine this too, a jealous cousin comes to you and says, hey, our family has ten principles of how we deal with our wealth, how we spend it, how we save it, how we give it away, and you've only covered three out of ten, so you need to give back the inheritance. Now, if that happens to you ever, let me know. But also, if that happens, what you don't need to do is go through your bank statements and point out how you spent your money. All that you need to do is go back to that signed last will and testament of your uncle and say, this was the covenant that was made. That's the point that Paul is making here. And it's a common understanding that we have of the covenants, and he's using that to argue his point that it cannot be changed. We know this. Once you sign that fat mortgage of yours, you can't give back the house other than through bankruptcy. On the positive, once you sign those adoption papers, they can't take back that baby girl. This is, this is crucial for a just society, and thankfully, it's true of our society. But the force of Paul's argument isn't in common sense. It's in the word even. Look at verse 15 again. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Even with a man-made covenant, this is true. But what about if it's a God-made covenant? If we who are sinners make promises and keep them, how much more does a holy God keep his promises? The weight of the promise then is on the character of God. The proof for our belief in the promise that God has given is in God himself. And that is exactly where God takes it in the promise. Here are these Cliff Notes version of Genesis 15. Your very own son shall be your offspring. And God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. This is what Paul has already quoted in verse 6 of our chapter. He believed the Lord. He heard the promises of God and he believed God and God counted it to him as if Abraham was righteous. Verse 7, and God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But look at how Abraham responds. This, This is so real. But Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He responds a lot like us. Abraham heard the voice of the Lord audibly tell him a promise. And Abraham responds, well, how can I know? I hear your promise, God, 
but how can I actually know that you'll come through? This is a sentiment of the human heart. And isn't it amazing that God doesn't respond with saying, how dare you question my word, Abraham? Instead, he responds like this. Verse 9, God said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these. He cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. So he brings all these animals, sacrifices them, cuts them in half, lays them against each other. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. That is the the presence of God. Pass between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying to your offspring, I give this land. This is the, one of the most unbelievable passages of the Bible. From Genesis 15 on, the Bible continually points back to this happening, this covenant that God made with Abraham. This is called a suzerain covenant, which was typical in the ancient Near East where Abraham was living. The idea of it was that a stronger kingdom would go to a lesser kingdom and offer their protection and their provision in a covenant with obligations for the weaker kingdom. That weaker kingdom, they had to do things like pay taxes, uh, offer soldiers, offer trade, whatever it may be. The, The stronger king was called the suzerain. The weaker king was called the vassal. At the end of this covenant, there was a ceremony that signified the entire covenant. They would sacrifice animals, cut them in two, there would be blood, and the weaker king, the vassal, would pass through, walk through the sacrificed animals, essentially saying that if I break the obligations of this covenant, If I don't pay my taxes, if I don't offer what I need to offer to you, then let me be cursed the way these animals are cursed. Or in other words, let me die at the hands of the stronger king the way these animals have died. But Abraham doesn't pass through the animals. God does. This is a unique reality of the God of the Bible. He completely flips this idea of covenant on himself. He is the powerful one out of the two parties. And he says, I will be the one that passes through the sacrifice. God says, I will take the covenant curses, not Abraham. The guarantee of the promise is not on Abraham. The guarantee of the promise is on God. God does not relate to his people contractually in that if we uphold our side of the bargain, then he will uphold his side of the bargain. God relates to his people covenantally in that when we don't uphold our side of the bargain, God upholds his side of the bargain and ours. We see this covenantal language in our marriage vows. I promise to have and to hold you from this day forward for better, for worse. 
you may be terrible. For richer, for poorer, you may be terribly broke. In sickness and in health, you may be terribly ill. But no matter what you can or can't do, I promise to have and to hold you. I promise to love you. And this, even in a man-made covenant. We promise to one another that we will uphold our obligations despite the other person's ability to uphold theirs. How much more so with a holy God? And this gets to the bottom of why the covenant is better. We covenant in marriage and God covenants to us because of love. Covenant is the binding promise of love. The covenant is better because the God of the covenant has proven himself to be the God of love. The problem is we have a really hard time believing this, don't we? The serpent whispers to us, did God actually say that? We have enough glory in us to sense that we are, as Tolkien stated, still soaked with the sense of exile. But not enough glory to believe that we deserve to be back in that glorious land. So in this tension of our glory and our ruin, we copy what our parents did and take the good things that God created and attempt to cover our nakedness with fig leaves of the law created by God as good for their intended purposes, but horrific for a covering of unrighteousness. I have a friend who's a local youth intern. You guys actually know him. His name's Mac Holt. He's the local youth intern here. And a few months ago, I went over to Mac's house for a poker night. Uh, I usually take their money. I actually always take their money. And uh, there's no law against that. And... Uh, Anyways, Mac and Jess bought this new house. You know, Mac's taking me through the tour, the bathroom, all this stuff. It looks like Chip and Joanne Gaines went through it. He's bragging, you know. I'm impressed. He, he did a lot of it. But then I got back to the kitchen, and, you know, I go for a glass. And uh, I grab the glass up in a cabinet, and the whole cabinet starts wobbling. And I look to the other side of the cabinet, and I see that the, the cabinet's not anchored into the wall, but it's actually propped up uh, where there's a, there's a lower cabinet, there's a microwave, and there's, then there's three thick theological books. <laughs> Probably theological books that he didn't read for seminary. Um, but I'm like, Mac, what are you doing, man? You know, there's probably, there are, there are plenty of good purposes for theological books, you know? You can learn a lot about God, you can expand your vocabulary, you can impress your friends, but theological books are not made to be the foundation of a cabinet. I told Mac this, I told him how to anchor it, you know, into the wall, he had, a, he had another child on the way and he took care of it, so everything's good over there. Because that can actually become dangerous when you don't use it properly. This is what Paul is saying about the law. The law was created and given by God and is therefore good. As our scripture reading from Psalm 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's not just good, the law of the Lord is perfect. 
reviving the soul. But we misuse the law, and in so doing, make it something that doesn't revive our souls, but destroys it. It becomes dangerous. The problem, though, is not with the law, it's with how we use it. Now, you might be thinking, of course, I'm not trusting in the Mosaic law for my salvation. Makes sense. My guess is that not many of us in this room are trusting in our circumcision to get back right with God, nor in our passing of the bacon aisle and Kroger. But we've made our own fig leaves with the good things of God. We've made our own laws, haven't we? The law of a good family or a good marriage, which in themselves come with thousands of other laws. The law of prohibition, not being divorced, not doing drugs, not being poor or rich, not being a liberal, not being a conservative, my goodness. The law of knowledge, the law of success, the law of church attendance and membership, the right doctrine, the disciplines of the Christian life laws, the law of prayer, the law of Bible reading. I don't read enough or I don't pray enough. The law of niceness, the law of a good name, the law of being a useful Christian. Maybe if God can just use me more and maybe if I can help somebody get saved. A non-judgmental Christian, an intellectual Christian, the list goes on and on. We think the law of Moses is numerous but it pales in comparison to our modern book of the law. What do you look down on other people for? What do you envy other people for? What can you not imagine a person doing or being and still be a Christian? What fig leaf of yours, if it fell off, would make you feel naked and ashamed before a holy God? Can I be as clear as possible, friends? Let them all fall to the ground. Let them fall to the ground with their shame and their guilt with your strength and with your weakness, with their identities that they give you, let them all fall to the ground. There is no law that can fulfill, that you can fulfill that is capable of giving you the glory that you're trying to get out of it. To quote Paul, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the law points you to quite the opposite. There is none righteous, no, not one. We know this. Just play it out. If you have a law of motherhood, and you, your law is that I have to treat my children the, other, the, the best way that a mother can and provide for my children and feed my children and be patient with my children and be kind with my children, we all fell that law. So let it fall to the ground, sister. There is none righteous, no, not one. The only thing that can give you life, that can give you the glory that you've been searching for your entire life is God himself. 
And that is exactly what he does. Let's finish with a better reward. What Abraham believed by promise, we have received in substance. Paul has just quoted that cursed is everyone on a tree. And Christ hung on a tree as a curse. Do you know what that means? That the promise that God gave in Genesis 15, that he would take on the covenant curses if the obligations were broken, has come true. Jesus, that beautiful name that we just sang about, is beautiful because he took our curse upon a tree. Abraham looked forward to that day. We now look at the substance in Jesus Christ. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ. This gets really crazy, guys. God makes his promise not only to Abraham, but he makes it to the son. There are some amazing undergirding truths about our triune God in this chapter. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit eternally dwell in perfect love and harmony with one another. God is saying to Abraham, I am making a promise to not only you, but also to my Son. That same God who dwells eternally in love and joy and glory. Do you think the Father would ever break his promise with the Son? Never. But it gets even better. This love of the Trinity we have been brought into. The blessing and Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see that? Abraham was offered a lot of blessing, a great nation, a great multitude. Look up at the stars, Abraham. Look at how great the generations will be that come from you. He was offered this amazing land, but Paul says, and the gospel says, that the greatest blessing that Abraham was offered was none other than God himself in the form of the Holy Spirit. And you, who have the faith of Abraham, also receive this promised Holy Spirit. And what the Spirit does is what he's always been doing He is committed, because he loves the Son so much, he is committed to glorifying the Son in a way that he shows you the goodness and the love and the glory of Jesus. At the beginning of this chapter, Paul says to the Galatians, far from Jerusalem, decades after the crucifixion, he says to the Galatians, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Before the eyes of the Galatians, they weren't there. 
What does he mean? The Holy Spirit in such a way that when the gospel is proclaimed, what he does is he opens our eyes to see the glory and the goodness and the love of the Son showing us as if we were there at the crucifixion, showing us the promise fulfilled by God. And this same spirit is called the spirit of adoption. He is the sign and the seal of sonship. At Jesus' baptism, he goes down into the Jordan. The heavens open up. And he's baptized. And it says that the spirit of God descends on the son as a dove. And it says the father speaks and testifies. This is my son that I love and in whom I am well pleased. That same spirit that fell on Jesus has now fallen on you and me, brother and sister. The spirit of adoption who now says that we are indeed the sons of God. And it's really important that we, we keep that sonship as central to this promise. Because what Paul says now is for as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. That we have been united by the Spirit in such a way to Christ that it is is as if we have put him on. He is now our clothing, which answers all of our issues with putting on the fig leaves of the law that try to cover our unrighteousness. We can now trade those fig leaves for the covering of the righteous Son of God. You no longer need fig leaves to cover your ruin. You have put on the full glory of the Son by faith in the promise of God. You do not need an identity given by works of the law. Because as many have been baptized into Christ, have put on to Christ, and there is now no Jew or Gentile, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our very fundamental identity has been given to us as the sons of God. There's no law of class. There is no law of gender even. Something as fundamental as as gender has now been replaced by the fundamental identity of sonship. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, the answer to our question Is there a God who actually loves us? The Father testifies, the Son testifies, and the Spirit testifies that the answer is yes. Because we are loved by this God, we can now freely love others as the law was intended, and we can freely worship our good promise-keeping God, the God of the covenant. And we can sing songs like we're, we're about to sing. And mine are keys to Zion City 
where beside the king I walk, for there my heart has found its treasure. Christ is mine forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help uh, to believe these things. Spirit, I pray that you would convince us that you would show us Christ again as beautiful and glorious and as to be treasured above all things. I pray this in his name and for his glory that you love to do. Amen.